0: Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Happy Palm Sunday. <clears throat> Let me give you a uh, super quick heads up about a couple of things. Next week, again, if you weren't here for the announcements, 830 and two services. So pick the one that works best for you uh, and then serve in the other one. So that would be super helpful. We need extra servants next week, extra greeters next week. Even if you're not, you know, necessarily like on deck, if you would Stick around, hang around, and just welcome people uh, as they are here on that day. Second thing is, starting the week after that, <clears throat> we are going to be taking a bit of a break from our study through Samuel and Kings. Uh, we kind of came to a place last week where Samuel, or not Samuel, where Solomon has died, and so after this, the kingdom is going to splinter and split. Um, And so we're going to come back to that in the fall. So we're going to set it aside for the fall. So starting the week after Easter and running through the summer, we are going to be going to Paul's last letter, the one that he wrote right before Nero separated his body from his head, and that is 2 Timothy. It's the last one he wrote, so we will do that this summer. And so you can be looking forward to that. But like I said, today is Palm Sunday. So if you have a church background, today is the day where in Sunday school you made like a green palm leaf out of construction paper or you were giving some, you know, palm leaf and you walked around waving that or whacking your brother with it just to annoy him while saying that the Sunday school teacher told me to. So that is what today is historically. And the reason that we grab those palm branches and we do those sorts of things is because that's what the Israelites were doing when Jesus entered on what we now call Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, uh, the week before he gave his life as a ransom for many. That's what they were doing. And the reason they did that is because like today, if there was a great victory, a big battle or something like that, we would have a parade and we'd break out flags and we'd break out confetti and all that sort of stuff. When that day, palm branches were kind of like their flags. And so they've got these palm branches, they're breaking them off, they're waving them, they're going crazy as Jesus enters into to Jerusalem riding on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9:9. They they're going crazy because they, he's here. This is this is the one. So they're praising him. They've got their palm branches out, they're waving them because, like I said, Zechariah 9:9, 9, 9. here's what it says: Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so that's what Palm Sunday is all about. It is, it is probably may, maybe even the most clear call or cry of Jesus. The most clear claim of Jesus to B, like that He is the long-awaited Messiah. That He is the Christ. That He is the Son of God. That He is the King of the universe. That he, he is God in the flesh. And so when He comes riding into town, the people are rejoicing. They're hailing Him as King. They're exclaiming Psalm 118, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Like they know it, it's Him. This is the one. He is the king. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ, the long-awaited promise when the son of David. They, They get that for a minute. But what they don't get, even in the midst of kind of understanding that at least for a minute, what they don't get is what his reign as the Messiah actually looks like. Both like in that moment as well as what it would look like in the future. And I think probably a lot of us are in that same boat. Like we get Jesus is the king. Yeah, I've heard that a lot. But what does that look like? And, and what does it look like right now? I can't see Jesus as the king. And what does it look like in the future? Well, David, that we've been talking about for months now. David actually answers that question for us. A thousand years before Jesus even shows up, he answers that question for us. In Psalm 110 that Angela just read. And he answers it clearly. And because it is so clear, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. It's referenced over 25 times in the New Testament. Jesus quotes it. Paul quotes it. Peter quotes it. The author of Hebrews quotes it. It's everywhere. And they're all saying, Psalm 110, what this is talking about. Th- this is Jesus. This is who He is. He's the Messiah. And here, Psalm 110, is what His reign as Messiah looks like. And so let's look at it together and learn from David and Jesus and Paul and Peter and the author of Hebrews about the reign of the Messiah, both now and in the future, and also what that means for our lives, both now and in the future. And so Psalm 110, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black hardback one around you. This is going to be on page 508 in those black hardback Bibles around you, 508. So if you have it, Angela read it, I'm going to read it again, and I want you to be on the lookout for three things as we read this. All right, three things. Kingship, priesthood, and judgment. All right, kingship, priesthood, and judgment. So Psalm 110, look at it with me. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Friends, this is the Messiah. This is Jesus. He is, go ahead and give you your outline, number one in your notes, he is our great king. You see kingship. He is, number two, our high priest. You see priesthood. And number three, he is our warrior judge who fights on behalf of his people. You see that verses 5 through 7. And so that's the outline, all right? Jesus is our great king, he's our high priest, he's our warrior judge. That's the outline. But the whole key to understanding this psalm comes in the heading. Not the one that's like supplied by some, whoever, whoever translated whatever Bible you have. But, but the actual heading where it says, a psalm of David. Like that's, that's part of the scripture, okay? And the key to understanding this text lies in that heading. Because what that means, a psalm of David, that means that David is the writer. Okay, he's the singer, he's the speaker here. And that is super significant because look at the first line of verse 1. The Lord, all caps, says to my Lord, lowercase. Now, that is not an error in your printing of your Bible. It's not an error in your translation. Your Bibles are correct when they record it that way. What this is is actually something super significant. See, all caps, Lord, is the literal name of God, Yahweh. So whenever you see all caps, Lord, in your Bibles, you know that it's actually referring to the literal name of God, Yahweh. Now, it's translated as Lord because the Hebrews would not even speak the name of God because they so revered His holy name. They were so fearful of taking His name in vain that they would not even read it as they read the scriptures. They would say, Lord. It kind of puts our little texting OMG in a new light. God's name is Holy. It's actually Trisagion, three times holy. That was for the elders. But that's what the all-caps Lord is. It's the actual name of God, Yahweh. And what this says is Yahweh, all right, one person, says to my Lord, okay, this is another person, literally Adonai, okay, this is David's Lord. This is, this is the Messiah, and so literally, David is like observing a conversation in heaven where Yahweh, God the Father, says to the Messiah, says to God the Son. And so that's why all the New Testament writers quote this so often, pointing out that this is Jesus. He is David's Lord. And Jesus himself quotes this about himself. I'll give you one example. It was recorded in all like, the synoptic Gospels. Those, that means synonyms. So Matthew, Mark, Luke. John's kind of something a little bit different. It's more of a theology of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke kind of tell the story of Jesus. So all the synoptic Gospels record what I'm about to read to you from Luke. And so Jesus has been answering questions of the scribes. He answers them. They're amazed at his answers. He turns around He says, hey, let me ask you a question just trying to help them understand that the Messiah, okay, the one that God has promised to be on the throne of David forever, was far, far greater than just a mere human descendant of David. And so, for example, Luke chapter 20, Jesus says this. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son, like descendant? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, and here we go, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So, how is he his son? And so Jesus is just making the point that the Messiah has to be something far greater than a mere descendant of David. He has to be both man and God. And so this whole psalm, 110, is a conversation between God the Father speaking to God the Son, that is Jesus. And as we said, he speaks of Jesus' reign in three main ways and the first one is as king and so number one again if you're taking notes can write it down messiah jesus is our great king all right this who this psalm is about the lord yahweh says to my lord this is what david says and so number one messiah jesus is our great king and verses one through three really detail this kingship out what it looks like both right now and in the future And so verse 1 again, the Lord says to my Lord, what does he say? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. All right. So this is how Jesus is reigning right now. When we talk about his kingship, when we think right now, this is how Jesus is reigning. He's sitting at the right hand of God. Theologically, this is what we call Christ's session. Okay. His session. And it kind of has a dual role. For one, it serves as kind of like an exclamation point on the completion of his work of redemption. And so after Jesus lived a perfect life in our place, after he died on the cross to pay for our sins in our place, after he rose again in victory over sin and death so that through faith we might be saved from our sin, and after Jesus did all of that and descended back into heaven, he can now sit down because it's finished. He's accomplished the work of redemption. His sacrifice was sufficient for all sin. And so that's one thing that Christ's session, his sitting, shows. But the right hand of God is specifically a place of exaltation, it's a place of power. And so this is also an announcement of the heavenly session of the Messiah, where he sits not to rest, but to rule. But to reign at the right hand of God, sitting at the right hand is a picture of an exercise of authority. And so, for example, some of you know that I grew up as part of the Presbyterian tradition. And when their elders in the Presbyterian tradition gather for a formal meeting, it's called the session. Like they are, the, the session is meeting. They're, they're, they're doing something. They're Leading the church. It's what the session does. And it's kind of the same idea here. Christ's session is not about just sitting around. It's about authority. It's about leadership. He's exercising that. And so Jesus' ascension and then seating at the right hand of the Father means that He reigns. That He rules over all our enemies, even right now, First Peter three twenty two. Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and, as a, and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to Him. And so He's not sitting to rest; He's sitting to rule because He's the King of the universe. In comparison, our biggest bombs are like caps in His pistol. Our greatest computers are the tinker toys of heaven. There is no arms race in heaven. Jesus wins always. He is powerful over all things. And this is good news because Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And friends, Jesus reigns over them. And he does so even now, even, even right now. Even as he allows them some level of freedom in this world, he still rules over them. But there is coming a day when even those things will be footstools under his feet. And that's a future part of his kingdom. So look at verse 2 again. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule. In the midst of your enemies, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And so in other words, even Jesus' enemies, right, rule in the midst of your enemies, even Jesus' enemies are going to be forcibly subjugated. They will have to acknowledge his rule. But his people, verse 3, will freely embrace his kingship. They love his reign. His reign is their freedom. His reign is their joy. His reign is their hope. And so when we hear Paul in Philippians 2 say that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Paul's not saying that there's going to be some sort of universal salvation so that every last man, woman, child who's ever lived will become a believer and will enjoy heaven forever. No, 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 no. He's saying that there will be a universal acknowledgement of the kingship of Jesus by his enemies and by his disciples. That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is in fact who David says he is in Psalm 110. And so the brass tacks of all that is this. You are going to bow to God one way or another. Everyone is. And so you can bow as a trophy of His grace or you can bow as a trophy of His justice. But you will bow. And you will give God glory. Glory no matter what. Either you'll give him glory by highlighting his grace or by highlighting his justice. And so even the most hardened heart in here that goes, forget you, God, I want nothing to do with you, in the end is going to bring glory to God. His name, his power, his justice, his goodness, his rightness. It's inescapable that you do this Because he's king. And you can rail your fist at him all you want, but before the one who spoke the cosmos into existence by a word, that's pretty pathetic. Messiah Jesus is our great king. And he's to be worshiped and obeyed, he's to be loved. He's to be honored, Messiah Jesus is our great king. That's number one. Second thing we see here is that Messiah Jesus is our high priest. Look at verse four. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so, this is where the psalm kind of takes this turn that's really unexpected. Because what it does is it unites the offices of king and priest. This is something that's not supposed to happen in Israel. They have rules and roles about these two things. So so this is very unexpected for them. However, it has been prophesied and anticipated beyond Psalm 110. Zechariah chapter 6 says this. Then speak to him saying, thus says the Lord, all caps, The Lord of hosts saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch from his place, he shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord. All caps. Yes, he shall build the temple, the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the, the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. And so again, at the time when David wrote this, this is kind of surprising. Kingship and priest. And yet at the same time, it has been seen before in this guy named Melchizedek. Somebody's like, who is Melchizedek? Great question. He shows up out of nowhere in Genesis chapter 14. And then he's gone in a flash. All we know is that he was a king priest. Like, he he was a king priest. All right? He he brought those two things together. And he was the king priest of Salem, a.k.a. Jerusalem. he was so great that the patriarch Abraham tithed to him. And he's only mentioned in Genesis 14 here in Psalm 110 and then in the book of Hebrews where he's mentioned eight times. But the point here is David is saying that Messiah Jesus will be that kind of priest, one like Melchizedek, a priest forever, a king priest. The author of Hebrews in one of the eight references puts it this way in chapter 5. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus is our great high priest, our king priest. And this is emphasized by the fact that Lord there, again, look at it. Is it all caps or lowercase? Verse 4, Lord, all caps or lowercase? All caps. caps. And so Yahweh, what this is saying, this is heavy emphasis. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind, saying to Messiah Jesus, you and you alone are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And as Melchizedek was a king priest in his day, so you shall be a king priest forever forever. No one will ever succeed you. No one will come after you. By God's decree, this is stated and by God's decree, it is so. And so friends, this is our Messiah. This is our Messiah. He's a priest like Melchizedek, a priest for all nations, not just Israel. He's a king priest, combining those two offices. And what is a priest but to intercede for us before God? And Jesus does this effectively or effectually. See, Jesus is a priest like no other priest who has ever existed was a priest. Because he is a priest who, though he understands the weakness of our flesh and is sympathetic to us in that, he did not have to offer sacrifices or offerings for his own sin so he is a perfect priest and his prayers are effectual that's what it's talking about in hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 where it says that with loud cries he interceded for us and he was heard because of his piety like that can't be said of any other priest that god has to listen to him because they lived a perfect life that can't be said of any preacher that can't be said of any priest that can't be said of any christian God had to listen to them because of their piety, but of our priest, Jesus, it not only can be said, it has been said, and it is irrefutably and unassailably true. And so his prayers have a captive audience before the throne who listens to every word he prays. and he prays for you. He paid your sin debt. And now he intercedes before the Father on your behalf. You realize that? That Jesus prays for you. And so take comfort. The Lord Jesus, our high priest, intercedes for you today. And he's a king, reigning and ruling on high for your ultimate good today. Even in the midst of your disappointments, even in the midst of your letdowns and setbacks, and even in the midst of tragedies, he's reigning for good. My friends, even those things like tragedies and sin and death will one day soon all come to an end. Because of number three in your notes, Messiah Jesus is our warrior judge. Messiah Jesus is our warrior judge and he's fighting on behalf of his people. Look at verse 5 again. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Look up at verse 3 again. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. These are the same days. The Lord is at your right in verse 5. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. And so the last three verses here of Psalm 110, they take us from like this, from a focus in the book of Hebrews about the high priest. The book of Hebrews is full of that. It transfers over to the book of Revelation, specifically chapter 19, where our great high priest is not some wimpy priest. He's not some weak king priest. He's a warrior king, he's a warrior priest, he's a warrior judge who fights on behalf of his people. And the playground bullies of the world, both spiritual and physical, meet more than their match in our, listen to this, our divine bodyguard. Because verse 5, there is coming a day of wrath, same thing, verse 3, day of His power, when Christ will return and everyone will see Him for who He truly is. And whereas in His first advent, He came as a baby, meek and lowly, In his second advent, he's coming as this warrior king, this warrior priest, this warrior judge. This is Revelation 19, a warrior king on a white horse, tattoo on his thigh, sword shooting out of his mouth with the blood of not himself, but his foes staining his garment. And at that moment when he comes again, yes, indeed, every knee on heaven, on earth and under the earth, will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so that day is coming. Because Christ's kingdom is kind of this... I want you to listen close. Christ's kingdom is kind of this already, not yet paradigm. Okay? It's, it's already happening, like in this session, all right? It's already happening. It's already present with His session, but it's not fully present with His Presence on earth but that's coming and when it does come all the enemies of his kingdom including sin and death will be flicked into oblivion like BB's on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean and so the kingdom is coming are you ready are you ready For the non-believer, this should be a little bit unsettling. And I hope it's a pebble in your shoe for a long time until you confess Christ. It should be a little bit unsettling, a little bit unnerving, maybe even a little bit frightening. With this talk of shattering and corpses. But for the believer, this is what we long for. Not not the death and that sort of stuff. What we long for is for Christ to come and make everything right. We're ready for, as Gandalf said to Samwise, all the sad things to come untrue. Because deep down we know that death and pain and sorrow are not natural. We aren't meant to live like this. We're meant to live somewhere free from these things. And so we rightly long for a better place. We rightly long for that shalom, that perfect peace and fellowship with God and perfect fellowship with one another, a true brotherhood of mankind, perfect harmony with the universe and the earth and its coming. That's what the Messiah's reign looks like. He's king, he's priest, and he's a warrior judge. And so Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as a king praised. Five days later, he died as a king mocked. And someday soon, he will return as the king of kings. And so on Palm Sunday, then we should let our hosannas ring loudly and together. Both with our words and even more so with our lives display, long live the King. Let's pray. We praise you, Messiah, that you are King, that you are priest, and that you are a warrior on behalf of your people, and that you have already struck the death blow to sin and death when you died and rose again. And we await the day that you come and eradicate those enemies forever. Father, we pray that you would fill us with a, an awareness of your holiness. As we read Psalm 110, we're treading on holy ground. Would you flood us with a measure even of your greatness and your might that you are God and there is no one else, that you are all-powerful That you hold the universe in the palm of your hand. You spoke it into existence. Every molecule you are in control of. And we rebelled. We committed treason. Against the king. And as treasonous rebels, we deserve capital punishment. But how good are you that you sent Jesus to rescue us through faith in what he has done his life and his death and his resurrection and so we praise you this morning even as we contemplate in awe your greatness we ask these things in Christ's name